You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everybody. This is Iona coming to you from Buenos Aires. And my guest this week is Kathy Young. Kathy is a contributor to a regular columnist at Reason and Newsday, and she is the associate editor of the publication Arc Digital, also known as Arc Digi, a publication I highly recommend. Kathy is also the author of two books, Growing Up in Moscow, Memories of a Soviet Girlhood, her memoir, and Ceasefire, why women and men must join forces to achieve true equality. And I gather, Kathy, that you are thinking of writing an update to that second book. Yeah, or you could call it a sequel, maybe. It's just, uh, you know, it's very timely at the moment, I think. Uh, and it's kind of ironic that, uh, you know, when I was writing about feminism in the uh, 1990s, and I was writing about the sort of gender war uh, type of feminism, I was really honestly thinking that things were changing for the better and, you know, that we were going to go in a less polarizing and you know, more inclusive, so to speak, direction. Uh, and, uh, you know, looking at a lot of the things that are going on now, it's kind of like, you know, geez, it's, uh, you know, it's all the same stuff, only now it's amplified a thousandfold by the social media. So it's, uh, it's really quite amazing. I think I, I gather that you feel that um, we need to strike a balance between, on the one hand, people, some people on the social justice left in particular, who take a completely blank slatist view and see every kind of difference between women and men as socialized, in particular things like which which careers have more women and more men. Right. So if they see an area like tech where there are fewer women, they, that they conclude that that can only be because of prejudice and discrimination against women or hostile work environment. It can't be a result of preferences. Right. But on the other hand, I'm hearing a lot of people also writing in an extremely deterministic way about men and women. Men are men are naturally like this and women are naturally like that. And that seems to me also very regressive. Right now I'm working on an essay on this topic for Colette, uh, which uh, actually I started... <laughs> about I mean it was originally due I think a couple of weeks ago uh, but it's just you know this the, the current um, news environment is just crazy because it's like when you're writing about something that is a extremely time sensitive it keeps getting pushed back because there's always a thousand things happening in the news and I kind of got distracted by the anti-Semitism debate, which is another topic that I've written about quite a bit as uh, a former Soviet Jew who has some, you know, personal views on the matter. Uh, so I've, I've been doing some uh, writing on that as well. But yeah, not to uh, sort of spread ourselves too thin. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the um, the thing that also bothers me about the sort of the, a lot of the social justice um uh, the, the intersectional, uh, kind of politically correct brand of feminism. Uh, there is this basic contradiction that I think not too many people really stop to examine, which is that on the one hand, they really do take this very um, kind of rigidly, uh, I don't want to say egalitarian because I think it's not, but it's it's this rigidly sort of men and women are identical approach, 
where, you know, some people will even argue that physical differences between men and women, you know, as manifested, for instance, in athletics, uh, you know, one very obvious area um, where, you know, if you look at results from marathons, for instance, usually the best woman would not even be in the top 25 for the men. And you will see people saying that, oh, well, actually, this is all a result of the patriarchy and, you know, women not getting as much uh, nutrition or as much physical training, which, you know, honestly is, yeah, I mean, which is, which is really ridiculous because if you look at on, on the average, um, a man and a woman, neither of whom has had a lot of physical training, uh, generally speaking, you know, the woman will not do as well as the man uh, in any kind of physical contest. Obviously, there are exceptions, but I mean, to say that these differences are completely socialized is just bizarre. Uh, so you have that, but then on the other hand, you often have the same people use really blatantly double standards when it comes to, for instance, um, things like, you know, who is responsible for uh, sort of sexual miscommunication, uh, especially when both people are drunk. And you will often see sometimes, again, the same people, or at least people from the same ideological camp, say that, oh, well, you know, we really should hold the man more responsible because, you know, men are stronger and women are more vulnerable in those situations. So, you know, if two people, both of whom are intoxicated, have sex, and then the woman later decides that, you know, she didn't really want this, uh, even though at the time she seemed quite consenting and even enthusiastic, we can say that, you know, really the man should have been the one to know better because, you know, he's the man. So there is this really schizophrenic, in my view, um, mentality where it's kind of like, you know, women and men are exactly the same when it suits, you know, this uh, brand of feminist, and then they're completely different when it's more suitable for them to be different. Uh, the same double standards, for instance, with regard to domestic violence, um, which is a really fascinating topic because you know there really is a lot of evidence that you know women are um, quite often the aggressors in domestic violence. Now, it's usually not as dangerous for male victims because of physical differences. Although you know the, there are uh, definitely cases in which men have been uh, severely injured uh, in domestic violence uh, by women. And I have seen just a lot of um, absolute unwillingness uh, on the part of sort of doctrinaire feminists to acknowledge that 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 can be a problem because, again, you know, men are the ones with the power and so on and so forth. So you really have this bizarre kind of disconnect where on the one hand you say that, oh, you know, women should be an equal number of firefighters because they're really just as physically capable of, you know, dragging somebody out of a burning building. But, you know, because they're physically um, more vulnerable, they should be kind of given preferential treatment when it comes to, uh, you know, determining who's the victim of domestic violence in a kind of sexually violent situation. So that is, um, the, the, that's one of my issues. So it's not really just um, kind of blank slateism or whatever. It's not just this sort of radical um, you know, insistence on women and men being identical, it's also very opportunistic. It's, you know, it's uh, men and women being identical when convenient. Um, all right. So, yeah, so on the one hand, yeah, I, I have a lot of issues with, um, you know, the sort of uh, the orthodox feminist viewpoint, for lack of a better word. I don't know if there is an orthodox feminist viewpoint, but, you know, um, the, the, I guess the mainstream feminist viewpoint or whatever. Uh, on the other hand, uh, as uh, as we were saying before, um, in the sort of um, camp of uh, critics of feminism, um, you know, some of whom I agree with, uh, you know, about 80% of the time, um, I do see um, 
a level of uh, kind of biological determinism uh, that really does bother me. And um, I think there's, um, I mean, if you take, for instance, evolutionary psychology, I think there's a lot of fascinating work that is being done in, the, in, the, in this field. Um, I absolutely think that there's a lot of, some of the rejection of evolutionary psychology really is very kind of anti-science. Uh, on the other hand, I do think that part of the problem lies with the fact that many people writing about evolutionary psychology tend to make these you know, very sweeping statements, uh, tend to, I think, overplay their hand in terms of, um, you know, what we really know about evolutionary differences. I think it's enormously complicated. And, you know, really, if you push them on it, they will say, oh, yeah, you know, there is a, actually a lot of uh, sort of interplay of uh, biology and culture, and it's very, very complicated. Uh, but you know, but on the other hand, when you look at some of the writings in the area, there's often a failure, I think, to acknowledge that, unless you know you kind of directly push that point. And I think a lot of the time, um, there there are conclusions that are made from research that seem to me to be a kind of real. A kind of leap of logic where, you know, the data are kind of interesting, but on the other hand, um, the, the interpretation uh, can really be kind of iffy. Uh, I'll give you one example that I'm probably going to mention in this article that I'm working on. Um, there was a study uh, several years ago uh, in which um, a group of women, uh, I, I, these were, um, I think, psychology students probably, which is usually what they use in the studies. Uh, so a group of women were told um, to basically wait in a room uh, for the professor who was going to do the study. And while they were waiting, a young woman who was of about the same age as they were came in with uh, like a delivery of an envelope for the professor or something. And this was all obviously set up. Uh, the young woman was a confederate. Uh, and in about half the cases, uh, the young woman was kind of dressed in normal, you know, sort of normal college attire or normal sort of business-like attire, casual or whatever. Uh, and in the other half, the young woman was dressed in a very kind of conspicuously sexy way. Like she was wearing a miniskirt, she had, you know, a lot of makeup on, and she was kind of like, you know, not only in a, not only dressed up, but, you know, kind of, you know, dressed up in a, I guess, trashy way, I guess you would say, you know, not to be judgmental or anything. But, but anyway, the whole point actually is that the young women uh, were very judgmental when this woman was um, kind of dressed uh, in a, in a, conspicuously sexy way and when the young woman left the room they all sort of made these catty comments along the lines of you what what the what in the hell was that and like you know what's she doing auditioning for a porn movie or whatever and the and they didn't make any negative comments about the um the woman who was dressed normally and the conclusion of course was that oh well this is female infrasexual competition at work and um this is just you know women sort of when when they see somebody um who is you know dressed in this very blatantly sexy way they see her as a sexual competitor and um you know, and therefore they react in this negative and kind of snarky judgmental way um and it seems to me that when you look at these results, um, you, there is a lot going on here, I think, other than, you know, female infrastructural competition. Mm -hmm. uh, one of which is simply that this is somebody who is not dressed appropriately to the occasion. I mean, you know, I would assume that, for instance, if somebody came in uh, wearing, I don't know, a clown outfit or, you know, like a Star Trek costume or whatever, they would probably also make pretty snarky comments after that person left and they would probably be saying, you know, what a weirdo. <laughs> I, I would, of course, yeah. totally applaud a Star Trek costume <laughs> Under, yeah, in any circumstances. <laughs> but a lot of people probably would not. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so... 
I mean, I think there, there, there are a lot of ways in which you could test whether or not this negative reaction is actually due to, um, you know, intrasexual competition. Uh, for instance, uh, let's say, you know, you could vary the uh, age of the person who comes in. So that, for instance, I mean, I would, I, I, my guess would be that if the woman who came in wearing a miniskirt and, you know, a low cut blouse and, you know, a lot of makeup, if she was 80 years old, you know, you would probably get even more negative comments. And, you know, you would probably get a lot of really nasty remarks in that case, even though, you know, presumably the older woman would not really be. Uh, you know, a, a sexual threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, let's say if she was sort of, you know, conventionally very unattractive, like if she was really overweight or something. And I, I know I'm sort of, I, I'm, I'm risking being accused of fat shaving here, but I'm just, you know, I, I'm just using the kind of conventional measures of attractiveness. Sure. And you're just talking about people's responses. You're not, I mean, we're not in yeah. any way um, condoning uh, people. Right, right. No. Um, no, of course. But, but, that, but that's really my point. That, I mean, the nastiness, I think, is due to, you know, the fact that the, this is a response to someone who is perceived as being socially inappropriate. I mean, you know, again, like imagine if it was a man who came in, you know, in a sort of business-like environment, uh, wearing speedos. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you get some. You would probably get some mean-spirited comments after he left as well. Uh, so yeah, I mean, to, to to take this, or you know, you could you could do all sorts of other things. Like you could, for instance, um, see if there would be differences in the response of the female students depending on whether the professor is male or female like you know are they actually i mean are they is this study trying to suggest that these women are sort of subconsciously vying for the sexual attention of the professor and that they uh you know perceive this um uh sexually dressed woman as a threat i mean i i just find that really really far-fetched yeah and i mean if you look at an environment in which women actually are competing sexually, like let's say a singles bar. Nobody would make catty comments about a woman in a singles bar because you know, she came in in a short skirt and uh, you know, a low cut top and uh, and a lot of makeup because that is the appropriate uh, you know outfit for that environment. Yeah. So I think that I think it's just a really bizarre and kind of far-fetched interpretation. And, you know, I, I think that the thing that we need to remember in looking at a lot of this research um, is that, you know, research is not um, ironclad. I mean, we've all heard about the replication crisis. Um, there have been some studies that, you know, purported to support evolutionary theory that actually have been, uh, essentially proven to be um, to be wrong. Uh, like I don't know if you heard about the one that supposedly uh, showed that women um, are more attracted to like extremely masculine men when they're ovulating. Yes, that's been debunked. I gather. Also, the study yeah. that men prefer women in red dresses has been debunked. Um, oh, that's. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we really have to be careful when looking at a lot of these studies because, you know, first of all, again, a lot of them, we don't really know what the research shows. We don't know what the interpretation is. Uh, We don't know, um, you know, how solid the the data really is. Uh, And secondly, you know, I think in a a lot of these studies, um, you really find fairly modest differences. Um, I mean, one thing that, I, that I've been reviewing in, in working on this essay, for instance, uh, is um, the, um, uh, the, the studies on uh, systemizing versus uh, empathizing. Uh, Simon Baron Cohen, mm. which you've probably yes, heard of. Yes, I, I, I have met him, actually. Um, right, right. Yeah, I, I'm certainly not, you know, saying anything negative about him personally. I, I've actually heard him speak, and I thought he was a fascinating guy. He had a lot of interesting things to it's say. It's extremely uh, interesting that he's autistic, but he studies empathy um, academically. 
actually realize that uh, oh he i didn't realize that he uh, he was yes uh, he, is, he, was he has high functioning autism right. um right right and this is uh, Right. I, I didn't actually realize that. That's uh, that's very, very interesting. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, the thing that I find interesting is that, uh, you know, I've seen people, again, sort of make these very sweeping statements. Uh, so, yeah. So uh, people have been using uh, Simon Baron Cohen's uh, research uh, to make these very, very sweeping statements about the male brain and the female brain. And you know, we really see, like, this research really shows us how women and men are different and complementary, where, you know, men are the systemizers and women are the empathizers. And the thing is that if you look at the actual data, like, even if we assume that all of these differences are completely biological and not influenced by culture, which... You know, I don't think that's really proven, although apparently there are some differences in newborn uh, infants. So, you know, I'm, I'm quite willing to allow that, you know, there are certain tendencies that are more pronounced in males and others in females. I mean, I'm certainly not, you know, going to bat for this absolute 50-50 parity and everything. Uh, but if you look at the extent of the differences, uh, I, I've looked at several large studies of um you know, sort of uh, the, the, what they usually do is control is compare autistic uh, people to control populations. And in the control population, what you usually find is that um, the, the largest group of people is actually a mix of um, empathetic and uh, systemizing traits. Uh, you get, uh, depending on the study, you get maybe like 20 Three percent of males and forty percent, like thirty-five to forty percent of females, in the empathy um, um, group, and then you get um, maybe like again, depending on the study, maybe like thirty percent of males and about twenty percent of females in the systemizing group. Um, again, it, it varies from one study to another, but the, the point that I'm making is that there is really a lot of overlap there. And like one study that I was looking at basically said that if you picked a random pair of a man and a woman, uh, the man would be kind of higher on the systemizing scale about 65% of the time, and the woman would be higher on the um, empathetic scale, about, you know, roughly the same percent of the time. So, you know, on the one hand, you could have somebody say, oh, well, that's a really pronounced difference. Okay, but, you know, what this really means is that if you uh, have to pick, you know, if you have this random pair and you have to decide, you know, which one of them is more empathetic and which one is more systemizing, if you make the sort of the, the stereotypical assumption, there's a one in three chance that you're going to be wrong. You know, that's, that's pretty high. So if, if you're going to make these stereotypical assumptions about people, there's really a very, very high chance that you're going to be wrong. Uh, and that people lose sight in in both in both extremes. They lose sight of the individual. Oh so you know, in the first extreme, the blank slateism, um, there's a failure to differentiate. Well, in both cases, there's a failure to differentiate between trends. Um, and I feel that 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 this is a more general failure. It's something I see a lot on the social justice left and and on the um, and on the conservative right as well. Um, that, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, there are some average differences in preferences. And therefore, if we look at statistics, at statistical differences, we can't attribute all statistical differences to prejudice, discrimination, etc. Because there are some average differences in preferences. But that tells us nothing about any particular individual. As usual, there's just no shortcut to fight... um, to judging an individual oh, without finding out who that person is and what their preferences right, are. Absolutely. And, you know, and I will also say, you know, I think it is very likely that whatever, you know, biological differences do exist are probably 
reinforced by culture to some extent, and it's not necessarily, you know, the patriarchy. It could be, um, for instance, that you know, if there are certain interests, uh, like let's say if um, girls are less interested in, uh, let's say, sort of computer-type games, uh, they're, they're less interested in the sort of you know, various uh, techy, you know, nerdy stuff. Uh, you're probably going to have a certain amount of sort of social pressure because, you know, most girls, at least, you know, when they're teenagers, I think most girls want to kind of fit in with their peer group, which you know, at a specific, mm. at that age, I think when growing up, peer groups do tend to be somewhat gender segregated. Not well, not segregated in a kind of rigid way, but certainly there is a sort of male peer group, peer group and a female peer group. Obviously, they have a lot of contact, but I think it's entirely plausible that both boys and girls sort of tailor themselves to some extent to the sort of more stereotypical interests and behavior because they want to fit in with their peer group. Uh, so, you know, for instance, a boy who's really interested in, let's say, ballet and art is very likely to be discouraged from that uh, in, you know, to a certain extent, because the boys that he socializes with, uh, you know, kind of see that stuff as, uh, you know, sissy stuff, basically. And um, on the other hand, a girl who is interested in the sort of geeky tech stuff uh, is likely when she hangs out with other girls to, to some extent, to be seen as a weirdo and i think in that sense i think there are definitely these pressures and i think it is a good thing to make society more supportive of people who don't fit the gender stereotype uh so i think you know i think that is what we should be aiming at you know not to say we absolutely need to have uh, you know, to, to, to have 50-50 and everything and to have, you know, an exact match in, in every area, but to say that, yeah, you know, we really do need to create better support systems for the very large number of people who do not kind of fit the stereotype and who have uh, sort of counter-stereotypical interests. And, uh, and I mm-hmm. think that is, that is very important. Uh, on the other hand, you know, where I really do part company with the um, the kind of more orthodox feminists is, you know, you, you, if you make the argument, which I think is entirely reasonable, that some of the disparities in certain jobs, um, in certain uh, you know, careers are explained by the fact that there are fewer women who are interested in pursuing those careers. Uh, and especially since, uh, you know, average differences are often magnified at the kind of the, the, the high end of the distribution so that, you know, you, you, you may not really have much of a difference on average between uh, you know, boys and girls' level of interest and, uh, let's say, high-level math. Um, but then if you look at the kind of the upper end of uh, uh, you know, the people who are really into that, you are going to find the, that it's usually you know, maybe like four or five boys for every girl. Um, now, should we have more girls in that area? Uh, you know, should we like encourage more girls to uh, to pursue that? Uh, maybe. I mean, I, I certainly don't see anything wrong with encouragement. But I think that if we start with the assumption that you know we'll know that we have equality, we'll know that we have equal opportunity only when we have you know at least a a fifty percent female representation. Uh, I think we have a problem because then we may well be yeah. chasing a ghost and then we'll be, um, and, you know, and I think there there could very well be the sort of the opposite problem of girls being pushed into careers that they are, don't find as congenial as others. Um, uh, I mean, I don't. I think, I, I think also it's not terribly encouraging to be told that, 
The reason there are so few women in this profession is because there's a very hostile atmosphere towards women and a lot of prejudice against women. I think that discourages women, young women from going into those professions. And I would prefer to say, um, look, you know, um, on average, fewer women prefer this. Um, You know, many women prefer other professions, but a lot of women also prefer this profession. You prefer this more power to you. And you may get a few kind of odd reactions simply because there are fewer women in the profession, but don't let that bother you. Um, you know, I think that would be a much more empowering message to send. Oh, um, yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. And yeah, you know, I think what I, it, it's interesting that the same kind of sloppiness and overgeneralization uh, that I think exists in a lot of studies that purport to show uh, these, you know, all important innate differences or, you know, female intersexual competition. Uh, you find that very much the same or similar problems in studies in, in social science that purport to see discrimination and gender bias everywhere. Uh, mm. There is... Yeah, I agree. There's a tendency to, you know, really, really magnify sometimes fairly small uh, differences. I, I did um, a kind of fact check that I actually that I wrote about uh, fairly recently of a study that was written up a lot uh, because it concerns women in politics. So it was kind of seen as relevant to, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton and a lot of the the other women who are currently who who will probably be running for president um, in uh, uh, in about a year. Um, uh, th- so there was a study that supposedly showed, and this is how it was written up, that people feel moral outrage and disgust toward women who are female politicians who are perceived as ambitious and interested in power. And, you know, this was just written up everywhere. Uh, it was in the, in the Atlantic. It was in the Washington Post. Like, you know, when when people are told that a female politician is ambitious, they find her outrageous and disgusting. So I actually looked up the data. And it was very interesting because uh, they, uh, they basically, again, they took a sample of people. They gave them uh, these um, fictional um, sort of vignettes uh, uh, describing a politician. I think it was sort of presented as a newspaper article about a state senator. Uh, and half of them got... We'll, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to this. Right. Um, so I'll get the details from you later, and there will be a link in the show notes. I'll be happy to give you a link to my article. Uh, so, yeah, so, so half half of the people got, a, a, um, got this sort of fictional article with a um, male senator, and half got one with a female senator. And then they also varied these, um, these vignettes so that half of them had uh, sort of extra text uh, that... D- depicting the politician as very ambitious and very interested in power, uh, and then they they asked the people who who read these uh, these texts to rate um, sort of their reaction to the politician on a whole bunch of different items, like how competent do you think this politician is? How uh, warm do you think he or she is? Uh, How likely would you be to vote for him or her? And one of the items had these um, sort of moral outrage um, uh, sort of measurements where they asked whether to rate again on a one to seven scale, uh, whether the politician, uh, whether they feel uh, out, they feel contempt, uh, disgust and anger toward this politician. Uh, and mm. uh, what was really interesting is that, first of all, when you have this sort of the control group in which there were no extra cues uh, depicting the politician as ambitious and power hungry, uh, the female politician actually got rated substantially more positively on everything uh, than the male politician. She was perceived as stronger. She was perceived as warmer. Uh, she was perceived as more competent. Um 
when you got these extra uh, kind of ambition cues, yes, it's true that the female politician was perceived sort of very slightly more negatively. Uh Again, you know, given the replication crisis, I would really caution against making any kind of conclusion from this before, uh, you know, more studies are done to see whether that was just a fluke in this one study. But even in that one study, it was really, it was a really small difference. Uh, And uh, in terms of the sort of the moral outrage rating, First of all, every, no matter what the condition, whether it was a male or female politician, whether or not there were these extra ambition cues, uh, the moral outrage ratings were very low for everyone because, you know, there wasn't anything that negative about this politician in this in this text. So, like, on a scale of one to seven, I think the sort of the ratings for uh, contempt, disgust, anger were somewhere between, like, 1.2 and 1.6 or something, you know, where one is basically none whatsoever, <laughs> you know. Uh, so we're really talking about very, very low numbers. And yeah, they're, again, like they're, they're somewhat worse for the male politician when there are no extra ambition, uh, kind of no extra references to ambition and power seeking. They're slightly worse for the female politician with those extra cues indicating ambition and power seeking. But I mean, to say to to interpret that as meaning that, you know, people are disgusted and outraged by ambitious female politicians is really just ridiculous, because that is really not what the study shows at all. I mean, it's, it's just this, you know, bizarre extrapolation that uh, doesn't really have anything to do with real life, by the way. I mean, when you look at, um, uh, you know, real life examples, I mean, I know that a lot of people um, have found it. I mean, it's, it's interesting, by the way, I, I think that people um, when Hillary Clinton lost in 2016, and, you know, I should mention, you know, I wanted her to win. I'm not a huge fan, but, you know, I, I really do think that Trump is absolutely horrible. <laughs> and, you know, I uh, I definitely thought that Hillary was, uh, you know, by far the lesser of two evils. Um, mm, yeah. But, uh, you know, but I think that this idea that, oh, well, you know, the, the fact that somebody as awful as Trump uh, could beat uh, the, this, you know, much more accomplished and competent uh, and experienced female politician really shows that our society hates women, which, uh, you know, I, I've seen that said a lot. And people somehow managed to forget that before he beat Hillary Clinton, uh, Donald Trump also beat, uh, I think, 16 male Republicans in the primaries, all of whom were more experienced, more competent, uh, and, you know, more um, kind of presentable than he is. Uh, yes, I mean, well, that's not hard since pretty much everybody well, yeah, is yeah, almost everyone fits that so, bill. I mean, the fact that he beat a woman... Uh, you know, doesn't really negate the fact that, you know, it's not just about gender. Yeah, obviously, there was something going on in the electorate where I think, you know, it, uh, the, the fact that somebody was a sort of establishment politician who was competent and presentable in conventional ways for many people was actually a minus rather than a plus. And I think, uh, you know, to... to uh, Blame all of that entirely on gender is is just incredibly simplistic and 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 really absurd. Uh, I mean, were there people? I mean, I certainly don't deny the fact that there are misogynists. You know that there are sexists. Uh, that there are uh, you know people who. Uh, voted for Trump, at least partly because they saw Hillary as this you know, castrating female. Uh, on the other hand, I'm sure you also had people who were enthusiastic about Hillary precisely because she's a woman. I mean, there were many people who said that. One of the themes of her um, of her campaign, really, is that it's time to elect a woman. So I think in that sense, really, the, I would my guess would be that these two factors 
probably are sort of on the whole negated each other so that the ultimate outcome I suspect really wasn't about gender. I mean, there's a lot of research from the last, um, you know, 10 or 15 years at the very least, uh, showing that generally speaking, when women run for political office in the United States, uh, they do they do not do worse than men. In many cases, they do better than men. You know, even you know all other things being equal, uh, we're not necessarily talking about you know a vastly superior female candidate being able to beat a mediocre male one. But again, when when everything else is roughly equal, apparently you know, the 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 woman has a somewhat better chance of winning. And it's funny that the reaction to this from a lot of feminist bloggers, for instance, has been to say, oh, well, you know, that's ridiculous. This just can't be because we all know that, you know, society is horrifically patriarchal and you know, women are held down. So there, there's almost this sort of resistance to good news, which I find really, really bizarre. Yes, yes, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think that on the one hand, Hillary ran a terrible campaign. You know, it was complacent. She's seen as part of the establishment. She's seen as already having ki- kind of quasi had a term in office because she is the um, a wife, the wife of a former president. And, uh, you know, there were there were many reasons not to there were many reasons not to support her. And I feel that some of the Republican attacks on her, even the most sexist attacks, were Republicans playing dirty. You know, politics is a kind of dirty game. You will seize on whatever you can find about your opponent to demonize. Um, And they would not have behaved in the same way if she had been a Republican candidate. So it was for many not about a hatred of women, but a hatred of Democrats. Oh, of course. And I mean, if you see, if you look at the Democratic reactions to Sarah Palin in, in 2009, you know, in some ways they were very similar. So, I mean, I do think that some of it is about really deploying whatever uh, whatever weapons you can deploy in a political fight. And, you know, I will say one more thing. I, I think... To a certain extent, Hillary Clinton's ability to, for instance, capitalize on the sexual misconduct charges against Donald Trump were kind of, you know, limited and really kind of hobbled by by her association with Bill and by that she was somebody who had stood by a husband who had also been accused by several women of sexual misconduct. And I think, you know, I think it's very telling that really the first thing that happened, you know, after this audio tape came out where, you know, Trump talked about grabbing women by the, you know, what, uh, in the, I believe it was in the debate after that, that he brought on, uh, into the audience, he brought the women, several women who had accused Bill Clinton of um, of sexual misconduct, and I think that really did kind of effectively neutralize uh, Hillary Clinton's ability to hit him on those charges because he, it was very difficult for her not to be seen as a hypocrite. And I don't think you know that's not the fault of the patriarchy. That's really you know Hillary Clinton's personal baggage, and and I think it's uh, um, it's really simplistic to kind of reduce it all to misogyny. And I, 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 I also do find it interesting, by the way. Uh, in terms of people saying, oh, well, you know, the, the fact that Trump was able to get elected after that tape came out really shows that, again, you know, our society hates women, you know, our culture really, you know, deeply, uh, you know, despises and disregards female victims. I will say, you know, again, you know, I, I, I really loathe Trump, you know, on many, many, you know, many uh, dimensions. I do find it really interesting that I believe that when that audio tape came out, this is the only thing that he apologized for. I mean, he actually went on, um, uh, I I think he recorded a television message 
where he was very contrite, which is extremely unusual for him because he, really he never apologizes for anything. I mean, he says all these horrible things about you know Mexicans, Muslims. You know, he he mocks a disabled reporter. Uh, you know, in uh, at a at, at one of his uh, you know meetings with voters, and uh, you know he does all these really really horrible things. He, he never apologizes for anything. This is the one time that he actually felt compelled to, uh, you know, go on the air and say, you know, this wasn't, this isn't who I am. You know, I'm, I, this was just, you know, a bad moment when I was, you know, like uh, trying to, you know, like well, this was really just locker room talk and, you know, this is not me. And, you know, I'm, uh, I have certainly never sexually assaulted anyone, you know, and, and, and so, you know, and I'm not saying that his contrition was genuine. I just think it's really revealing in terms of like, if you're going to talk about, uh, you know, what we as a culture really think about these things, I think it is telling that he felt the need on that one occasion to really offer something very much like an apology. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's very, very simplistic to say that, um, uh, you know, the 2016 election uh, really shows what a misogynistic society we are. And, you know, I, I, I mean, is Trump a misogynist? I mean, I, I think Trump is a narcissist. You know, I think he's uh, he probably kind of despises everyone who isn't Donald Trump to some extent. And, I mean, I, I, I think he um, uh, certainly, you know, views women as sex uh, objects to some extent, but you know, at the same time, uh, I will say, you know, if you look at some of the people around him, he's certainly capable of having, um, you know, professional relationships with women. I mean, there are some of his business uh, uh, kind of cronies that uh, with whom there are actually serious questions of nepotism. Well, no, not nepotism, but cronyism. Uh, some of those are women. I mean, I think he. Um, it's really, again, I think it's really simplistic to say that, uh, oh, you know, this is a guy who's just sort of signaling the resurgence of the patriarchy. Uh, again, you know, I think he's bad in all sorts of ways. Um, I don't think this, uh, I don't think the uh, kind of the, the badness of the Trump presidency is primarily about gender. Kathy, I'd like to, um, I'm, I'm conscious that we are that your time is precious um, and limited, and I would like to ask you a little bit about um, anti-Semitism. Sure. Um, and in particular, what I'm I see as, I mean, I I can see anti-Semitism coming from both left and right. So I don't want listeners here to get the impression that I think this is a greater problem on the left on the left than on the right. I do not think that. Um, but I'm more concerned and appalled to see it on the left. Um, and I'm more unused to seeing that happening on the left. Um, I'm particularly thinking about Jeremy Corbyn um, and the scandals involving the British Labour Party. And I don't know how much you know about that. Well, but... I've been following that. And I'm actually working on a piece for ARC right now about oh, uh, the great. whole question of, uh, you know, how do you differentiate criticism of Israel from anti-Semitism? Yes, exactly. Some... That was my question. Yeah, exactly my question. Some really interesting questions, by the way. And this is one of the things that I'm focusing on in my piece. Um, I've seen some people say that, you know, a lot of the kind of the reactions to you know, various accusations of anti-Semitism against, you know, people on the left who are um, sort of hostile to Israel, I've seen claims that this is really kind of a right-wing version of political correctness, that, you know, that, that essentially the, the, they're accusing uh, people on the left of uh, sort of microaggressions and uh, and so on, and that, you know, they're the, 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 the same people who are um, kind of mocking hypersensitivity about race and gender issues are suddenly hypersensitive to, you know, what they perceive as um, coded anti-Semitic, you know, references and tropes. Um, 
And, you know, I mean, I think that to some extent, it actually is a kind of valid question. And I have sort of done some soul searching as somebody who is uh, kind of very critical of um, uh, this hypersensitivity and the sort of the the social justice culture, which is always looking for various offenses and uh, kind of everyday language and uh, and, uh, so on. Um, I think there is a real danger in um, kind of going too far in the direction of saying, you know, I've seen... And number of people come pretty close to saying that you know if if you're a uh, like strong critic of Israel, th- th- there may be something kind of inherently anti-Semitic or suspect about that, uh, or at least if you're if you th- there is a valid question by the way, if, if you're anti-Zionist, like if you really if you believe that there shouldn't be a sort of a state that is defined as a kind of national Jewish state. Uh, is that inherently anti-Semitic? Um, and I think there is, you know, it's it's really, it's a hugely complicated issue. And I I think there is some kind of, some bad rhetoric on both sides. I, I do think that if you look at, like, in practical terms, uh, a lot of the sort of extreme... Um, hostility to Israel really does tend to cross the line into fairly overt kind of anti-Semitic rhetoric. I, I think that really just very, very clearly happens. Uh, I think it's definitely something that's been seen uh, in the Labour Party. Um, I mean, there have been a lot of controversies uh, about you know, anti-Semitic uh, statements and so on that didn't necessarily involve Israel. Uh, I mean, you you saw, the, you probably remember the controversy about the mural that depicted, you know, the, uh, the various uh, sort of Jewish, uh, uh, sort of uh, Jewish millionaires and uh, yes, absolutely. And I'll put I'll put a. I'll put a link in the show notes to that mural so people can see what right. we're talking That's about. Played with a lot of tropes of the sort of the rich Jews um, exploiting the population and so on, and uh, you know you've seen uh, like a number of people uh, in, in, for instance, in the controversy recently in the United States about the women's march. Um, Again, ostensibly, you have a, a number of far-left activists saying, "Yeah, we need to stand in solidarity with the Palestinians," but apparently, you know, some of the same people also made statements suggesting that uh, Jews uh, historically bear a um, um, kind of uh, a, a unique or special responsibility for the slave trade, which is you know, a complete fiction, uh, debunked many, many times, uh, that, you know, Jews somehow have, again, have a special kind of role in the oppression of black and brown people, which is, you know, which is complete nonsense. Uh, So you really see um, the the sort of... um, uh, this very kind of easy segue from uh, anti-Israel polemics, uh, which, and again, I would differentiate between, let's say, you know, criticizing the policies of the of you know Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, like who doesn't criticize the policies of Benjamin Netanyahu at this point? I mean, you know, and I think there are some disturbing developments in Israel. Certainly, I mean, I think that it just recently, um, and I wrote about this, um, you know, IPAC, the the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, which is sort of this proverbial Jewish lobby, um, or you know, the, the Israel lobby, uh, they issued a pretty harsh statement about Netanyahu being willing to, uh, you know, uh, to, to create a pre-election alliance with a couple of these, you know, really extremist parties in Israel that essentially believe in ethnic cleansing and believe in expelling all uh, uh, all Arabs or possibly even all non-Jews from Israel. And, uh, you know, you a lot of people, even people who are very pro-Israel, uh, Eli Lake, who's a, who's a columnist who, who's usually very pro-Israel, who writes for Blue 
Bloomberg News, uh, basically accused Netanyahu of uh, allying himself with uh, Judeo-fascists. So, you know, there, there's, um, uh, there, there's a lot of strong criticism of Israel and of the current Israeli government. I think, again, there's a, there's a really, there's a big difference between that and the sort of uh, almost this portrayal of Israel as a sort of mystical evil, you know, where uh, I mean, I think I think there are also very valid criticisms to be made of Judaism, especially Orthodox Judaism. Oh sure, um, and, and and you know, if you look at um, uh, Barry Weiss, who is a um, columnist, who uh, you know, well, a writer for the New York Times op page, who has often been portrayed as the sort of knee jerk you know, defender of anything Israel does. Uh, she has, um, I believe in yesterday's uh, edition, uh, she has a very strong piece um, uh, criticizing the treatment of women, uh, the women of the wall. I don't know if you're aware of that controversy. Mm, yes, yes, I am, yes. And I will link that also in the show notes. Right, where women who uh, who have come up, because uh, they, they, uh, they have these separate male and female sections at the, um, at the Western wall where the female section is much smaller and it's just very very obviously kind of discriminatory and there is a group of women who um, every month uh, come to the uh, the wall in, a, in in one of the sections that are reserved for men and um, uh, you know they pray um, they they hold the Torah which uh, the, the Orthodox um, they hold Torah scrolls which the Orthodox believe women should not do and uh, they had this action on uh, on March 8th on International Women's Day and they were attacked and spat on and just you know horribly treated by uh, by the by this mob of Orthodox men uh, who were there who believed that their presence there there was offensive and and uh, Barry Weiss had an extremely harsh article, uh, not only about that mob, but about the government essentially condoning this behavior and generally condoning uh, the sort of uh, you know orthodox extremism. And I think, yeah, I mean, there there are some very disturbing tendencies. I mean, you have these um, the the current. Um, uh, you know, mindset in this ultra-orthodox community. I mean, they believe, for instance, that women's faces uh, should not be seen on posters. That they, they were, or should should not be uh, printed in newspapers and magazines because it's immodest. I mean, it's really kind of like a, really like a, a Judaic version of the burqa, really a, a kind of the virtual burqa, uh, where you know women uh, women's faces should not be seen. And um, uh, you know they've been defacing posters and so on. So yeah, there is this very very worrying uh, kind of extremist uh, trend. And certainly, people have been writing about that. People have been criticizing the um, the government's uh, again kind of tendency to condone this because the ultra religious are part of the Netanyahu coalition. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there there is a lot of criticism, um, but it's really quite distinct from this um, uh, from these kind of uh, from from these uh, anti Israel polemics that really demonize Israel as such. And of course, we could get into all sorts of discussions, which we will not do, because otherwise we'll be here all day about the rights and wrongs of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, I mean, I am not an expert on the issue. I definitely do not think that, you know, all the rights and wrongs are, you know, neatly split along, you know, along uh, Israeli versus uh, Arab lines, and uh, you know, I, I think it's an enormously complicated issue. Um, and certainly, I mean, I think the Palestinian uh, people, I think, uh, certainly do suffer from, um, I think, from human rights abuses, some of which I do believe that the Israeli government has been responsible for. I think they've also been very badly served by their own leadership. Uh, I think they've been kind of thrown under the bus by um, a lot of um, a lot of the Arab um, uh, Muslim powers, which uh, uh, kind of find them to be a useful, um, um, I guess, bargaining chip or uh, you know a useful uh, weapon, really, to uh, to use against uh, Israel. Uh, so I think uh, it's very very tragic for the Palestinian people. But you know, I I do. I think there's a huge 
kind of double standard in this in the sense that there is a, a conspicuous lack of outrage when uh, Palestinians get uh, get mistreated by let's say Egypt um, where they've also been by the way prevented from crossing the border and so on and so forth they uh, when when they get uh, slaughtered in Syria by the Assad regime uh, you know there there are lots of these examples that you could point to and I do think uh, again I don't think that you can really blame all of the double standard and anti-semitism I think part of that a large part of that is because um you know, Israel is seen as this pro-Western power, and they're sort of they're allied with the United States. And I think there is this sort of um, on on the left, uh, there is this um, uh, sort of tendency to romanticize the uh, you know the oppressed people of the third world who are uh, in in this perception who are being oppressed by this Western imperialist outpost. So I don't think all of that necessarily has to do with uh, you know Jews per se, but again, there really is this very strong tendency uh, for the, the, these extreme anti-Israel polemics. Uh, to lapse into, um, uh, you know, very definitely anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric and imagery. I mean, you know, there, there and there have been many examples that have been collected of this. Uh, there was um, some years ago, uh, there was a cartoon in an Italian newspaper uh, that basically invoked the Christ killer uh, stereotype or, or, you know, label of Jews where they showed uh, baby Jesus facing this oncoming Israeli tank and looking terrified. And then the caption says, surely they don't want to kill me again. So this is like, you know, this is very blatant. This is like, you know, the Jews kill Jesus and they're going to kill him again. So, you know, I, I think it's it, it's really very disingenuous to deny that a lot of this crosses over into just, you know, blatant anti-Semitism. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and I think likewise, like when you see, um, I mean, I, I, and I'm saying this in my article, I mean, I think that there has been a tendency sometimes to kind of you know, react to, let's say, you know, very mean-spirited cartoons depicting Netanyahu and to say, oh, you know, this is anti-Semitic. I think that's really not a good thing. I don't think that, you know, anyone is really helped by this overreaction. I mean, I don't think it's anti-Semitic, let's say, to portray Netanyahu as, let's say, a warmonger. I mean, you may or may not agree with that, but it's it's really, it's not anti-Semitic. He's, he's the head of a state with, you know, a, a lot of military power that engages in military action that many people find questionable. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely fair game. And, um, you know, and, and I've, I've seen people from claim that, you know, a cartoon is anti-Semitic because, you know, it uses the Star of David. Well, that Star of David is on the Israeli flag. So, you know, uh, unless you say, you know, you can never um, you have a kind of negative cartoon, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, criticizing the actions of the Israeli government, um, you can't really say that the Star of David is off limits. Again, mm, you know, it's... Mm. A- this is a really rich topic, and I think we could continue for quite a while. Um, right. In fact, I think we could talk about other topics too for a long time. And probably I need to just invite you onto this podcast a second time sometime soon. That would be a great pleasure. Um, let's just remind people where they can find you. So at Arc Digital, um, at Reason, and at Newsday. Right. And I'm also on Twitter at Kathy Young 63. That's Kathy with a C. Thank you so much for coming on the show. A delight. And, and I really hope to see you again when, uh, you know, when you're in my neck of the woods. We, uh, have yes. A so, full disclosure, I have met Kathy a couple of times in real life. And I can confirm that she is every bit as huggable as she looks in all her photos. Aww. Well, thank you. And I would certainly say the same for Iona. She is an absolute <laughs> So that concludes this presentation of the Mutual Collaboration Club. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great way to end. Thank you so much, Kathy. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for Ario Magazine. 
Serial is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At Ario, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ario and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ario, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.